good to be with you this morning and to open God's Word together. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. It's also printed there in your bulletin. Lately, I've been reading a novel by an Iraq war veteran. Here's the storyline. A beloved sergeant is killed by a roadside bomb, but his squad is told that they're not allowed to attend the funeral because they have to be on QRT duty, quick response team. But they, they decide to go anyway, without permission, and so they slip off, off base in a stolen Humvee and sneak across the city of Baghdad to attend the funeral. However, when they're about halfway there, their hijacked Humvee breaks down. And they believe that they're about to be attacked, and so they abandon the stranded vehicle and they set out on foot. But it's not until after they've left the vehicle that they realize, oh no, we left the maps and the radio in the vehicle, and now the Humvee is engulfed in flames because the local nationals have set it on fire. And so now they have to find their way through a hostile city on foot, without support, and without even a map. So as you can imagine, this doesn't go terribly smoothly. Not only are there hostile people all around them, and the fear that comes with that, but also they're struggling against each other in a a certain way. They don't trust each other. And this treacherous journey is marked by moments of courage and fighting, and mistakes and heartache. One One of the main questions in the book is, do they have the wisdom to do it? Do they have the wisdom to actually pull it off? I mean, we know they have the training, I mean, the skills are there. They know how to evade and survive. They have each other. If only they can work together. They have food and weapons and other supplies. They have a tremendous amount of courage and resolve. But do they have the wisdom to understand their situation, to react to it appropriately, and ultimately to survive in the middle of a hostile city? How does it end? Well, I don't know the answer because I'm only halfway through the book. But that main question in the book seems like a very important one to me. Even though we live in Boise, not Baghdad, I think we could ask a similar question about ourselves. Do we have the wisdom to survive? Do we have the wisdom to survive, survive our lives? Do we have the wisdom to survive our culture? It might, it might strike you as a strange analogy, but I think it's kind of fitting, actually. This world is often very hostile. And I bet there have been times when you felt kind of like these soldiers, stranded, without a map or radio, just doing your best to put one foot in front of the other and hopefully make it out of this in one piece. And like that squad, we each have a variety of skills because God has made us with different gifts. And our different experiences in life have taught us how to live God has given us each other. Each of our lives are full of people, family, friends, co-workers, uh, and, and the like. If only we can learn how to trust each other and work together, right? I mean, we have supplies. We, sometimes, sometimes we even have courage and resolve despite our, our situation, despite our mistakes, and despite our heartaches. But do we have the wisdom Do we have the wisdom that it takes to live, to thrive, to survive these days, this life, this culture? Not just to live, not just to survive, but to live well. Do we have the wisdom to live well? That's one of the main questions in my novel. 
It's one of the main questions in our lives, and it's one of the main questions in our passage today from James chapter 3. What is wisdom? Where do we find it? And how can we have it? That's from, uh, let's look at James chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, 13 to 18 together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The Word of God from James chapter 3. We've been looking at James for a month or two. If you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that in chapter 1, James, who was the brother of Jesus and a leader in the early church and the author of this letter, he said this, In chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That should be a tremendous encouragement to us. And if we need wisdom, and who doesn't, right? And if you need wisdom, then ask God for it, because he loves to give wisdom generously. It's a prayer that he will absolutely answer. He might not answer it in the way that we anticipate, But he absolutely will answer it. We have his guarantee. Here in James chapter 3, he takes up the same topic of wisdom and he elaborates on it, describing what true godly wisdom actually looks like in practice. We have a a huge variety of wisdoms available to us in the world today. In fact, we could even say that there are over 7 billion Uh, versions of wisdom available to us in the world because that's how many people there are in the world. And in 21st century America, we are taught that all wisdoms are created equal. And so we shouldn't call any of them wrong and we shouldn't try to persuade anyone else of a different wisdom than their own, the one that they have. Seven billion wisdoms gets pretty confusing, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the more you explore our, con- our culture's concept of wisdom, the harder it is to tell what is up and what is down. That's just a fact. And I think we see that, you know, the symptoms of that all around us in our society. We don't know what's up and down because there are too many wisdoms available to us in the world. And we don't know. We say, I hear that, I hear that, I hear that. I don't know which one is, is real. Here in James chapter 3, James cuts straight through all of that. He takes a big giant knife and slices it right down the middle and he says, we will reduce all of the wisdoms of the world down to two. There are two wisdoms in the world. There's the wisdom of God and then there's counterfeit wisdom. There's only two, James says. This is another instance, we've talked about this in weeks previous, of James being like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs divides everything into two categories, wisdom and folly. The wise person does this, the foolish person does that. 
And nearly, I mean, if you read through the whole book of Proverbs, nearly everything in the whole world is basically sorted into one of those two buckets, either wisdom or foolishness. And here, James similarly divides things in his letter to the church. How does James define wisdom? This is kind of an interesting thing. He does not define wisdom like we would expect him to. We're used to, we're used to, to definitions kind of like this one. This is Merriam-Webster's definition of wisdom, and it's this. <clears throat> wisdom is, according to Merriam-Webster, A, accumulated philosophical or scientific learning, B, the ability to discern inner qualities and relationships, C, good sense, or D, uh, generally accepted belief. Those are the kind of definitions that we're used to. But the Bible, the Bible almost never defines anything like that. The Bible does not, uh, does not, is not interested in definitions like that. Instead of the concise, precise, technical definitions that we tend to use, the Bible usually chooses to teach us. God usually chooses to teach us in his word through the means of stories and examples and analogies, through the, ultimately through the history of how he leads and commands and serves and loves his people. God uses definitions that involve life. There's something intensely practical about what James describes here in chapter 3. Throughout the entire letter, really, but especially here. Wisdom must be practical. Wisdom is not knowing truth or facts. If you have facts, that's fine. And you can take them, and you can organize them, and you can write them down. But facts don't make wisdom until they can be used in real time, in real-life, day-to-day relationships. Relationships. Notice how James introduces the subject of wisdom in this passage. Who is wise and understanding among you? Wisdom is seen in community. Wisdom lives in community with other people. Wisdom is appropriately applying what you know about the reality that God has made. Facts are facts, but, but wisdom moves and flexes and changes with the situation of the people around us. So here's a great example of that, uh, of how wisdom is very different than just being smart. There's wisdom and there's smarts. Listen to how one writer described the very, very famous 20th century British philosopher named Bertrand Russell. This is how he's a... One of the most important philosophers of the last 200 years, this is how one writer described him. He had a powerful brain, but no one in his right mind would go to him for advice about anything important. Because wisdom is more than just being smart. We have a a world of so-called experts who lack true wisdom. We read what they say. We see them on TV all the time. They seem confident and intelligent. They have plenty of advice to offer, but their advice is not true wisdom, it's counterfeit. Okay, so we've talked about wisdom in general quite a bit. Let's move now to the heart of this passage. If there are two kinds of wisdom, true and counterfeit, how can we know the difference? James gives us a key in this passage in the words that he uses to describe the two kinds of wisdom. There's two kinds of wisdom, and he uses two sort of uh, series of words to describe each one. 
How can we tell the difference? Here, here it is. Uh, listen to the two lists. Counterfeit wisdom is, here are the words he uses to describe it. Counterfeit wisdom is jealous, selfish, boastful, false, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It produces disorder and every vile practice. Those are the words that he uses to describe fake wisdom. In contrast to that, true wisdom comes down from above. That's the first thing we must notice. We must notice our first clue to true wisdom is that it comes down from above. What a contrast to our culture, which says the true wisdom comes from where? Always from within. That's where true wisdom comes from. From within me. James says, no, true wisdom comes from outside ourselves. And therefore, we can, we can infer, therefore we should not trust what comes from inside to automatically be wise. What comes from inside just might be counterfeit wisdom. Or in the words of Proverbs chapter 3, do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Listen, listen to the other words that James uses to describe true wisdom in this passage. James also says that true wisdom is meek, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, impartial, and sincere. And it produces the fruit of mercy, righteousness, and peace. That's the second clue that James gives us about how to discern true wisdom. The proof of true wisdom is in its outcome. Does it translate into a good, healthy life, not just for the person, but for the people around them? Not to pick on him, but English philosopher Bertrand Russell is again a good example. Because during his lifetime, he freely offered his expertise to anyone who would listen. He wrote letters to the editor. He would uh, try to get conferences with presidents and prime ministers and economists and world leaders of every kind. He wrote them letters and he really tried to exert influence on the world and say, here's, here's the wisdom that I have to offer. But we might have asked his wives and mistresses and his children and his friends how his expertise served him in the end. Because at the end of the day, he lived a very tragic life and he brought a lot of grief upon himself and upon others. We can ask the same thing of any number of our Hollywood actors or political pundits, internet entrepreneurs, and our other cultural heroes. Does the wisdom that they have to offer bring good or evil on themselves and others? That's one of James' litmus tests of true wisdom. So in chapter 2, the previous chapter, James says that we must show our faith by our works. And then similarly here in chapter 3, he says we must show our wisdom by our works. Real wisdom is visible in real life. And in the Bible, nothing counts as knowledge until it is put into action and results in real goodness of life. So those are our two clues to wisdom from this passage, anyway. True wisdom comes from above. Counterfeit wisdom comes from within. 
True wisdom results in the goodness of life for all involved. Counterfeit wisdom produces chaos, disorder. So with those two clues in mind, I'd like to call your attention to three things that we should learn about true wisdom from this passage. Three things. First one's this. Do you remember the the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? It's one of the very famous passages. Could be one of our most famous chapters in the Bible that Jim mentioned earlier. The Apostle Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit, or the visible evidence that God is at work in our lives, is that we would become known for our love, our joy, our peace, our patience, our kindness, our goodness, our faithfulness, our gentleness, our self-control, that those would be traits that others would perceive in our lives as they watch us. Well, we can think of what James writes here in chapter 3 of his letter. We could, we could call these the, the fruit of true wisdom. So if those were the fruit of the Spirit, this is the fruit of true wisdom. The wisdom from above is meek, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, impartial and sincere, And this wisdom results in mercy, righteousness, and peace. Now, he's not talking about a pursuit of peace instead of truth. And he's not talking about a pursuit of peace that is weak and passive. What James says here could be misunderstood as passively doing what everybody tells you in the name of making peace. But that's not really making peace. What he's talking about here is instead more of an openness. It's, a, it's an attitude of, I'm not just stuck in my own idea, sure that I'm right, with my mind made up, so don't try to confuse me with your facts. What James is advocating instead here is being submissive to reason, submissive to discussion, and to the possibility that somebody else might have a better idea than I do. I mean, wouldn't I be wise and blessed to recognize that others have a better idea than I do? Isn't that a, that's a wonderful thing to realize that and to learn from them and gain knowledge and understanding from them. That's surely a better way to live than to believe that I have all the wisdom that I need from within myself. Fruit of wisdom. What would it be like if we measured our lives, if we measured our successes by the fruit of wisdom as James lays them out here in this passage? When I get home at at night and my wife asks me, how was your day? What if instead of using my usual categories to measure my day, which, by the way, I usually use my to-do list, and I ask, did I get enough done today? Oh, it was a good day because I got a lot done. Or, oh, no, it wasn't a very good day because I didn't really make a a big dent in the to-do list. What if instead of measuring my days on those terms, what if instead I... Measured my day by James' description of wisdom instead. Was I meek today? Was I pure? Was I peaceable? Was I gentle? Was I open to reason, impartial, sincere? Did I produce? We love to measure ourselves on what we produced today. What if we said, did I produce mercy, righteousness, and peace today? What a different way of thinking that would be. And what would it be like if we measured our lives using these categories of godly wisdom rather than the counterfeit wisdoms 
that come from our culture or from within. So that's the first thing. Here's the second. Second thing that we should notice from this passage. It's very interesting to note what James did not write about wisdom. He did not write a list of steps. He did not lay out a specific plan of action. Do this, and then this, and then this, and then this, this, and this, and then you'll be wise. He did not write a blog post about five steps to wisdom. Because here in James, wisdom is not a program that you can follow. What we see here is that James is actually far more interested in our character. Wisdom is less a path to success than a description of what kind of person we are. And in these verses, there's one character trait that stands out above all the rest that he seems to sort of focus in on. And that character trait is humility. Wisdom is at its core an act of humility. And that's just the opposite of our instincts, isn't it? I mean, when we are feeling our most wise, that's when we're just the most likely to tell everybody else what we know, right? When I'm feeling just the, so wise today, that's when I open my mouth the most. But the purpose of wisdom, the purpose of wisdom is not to tell others how to live their lives. It is, the purpose of wisdom is living a truly good life ourselves. That's the purpose of wisdom. And nothing is more fundamental to that life than meekness or humility. Real wisdom will always make a person humble. So the actions of a wise person will be marked by humility, a wise meekness. Humility comes from wisdom, but you can also reverse that and say that wisdom comes from humility. The two feed into each other. In our cynical age, people uh, tend to think of someone who is gentle or meek or humble as kind of a wimp, right? I mean, they're, they're a bit naive. Maybe they don't really know how the world works. They're certainly not equipped to thrive in the world if they're gentle and meek and naive uh, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, humble. I mean, we could, you could even say that in our culture, the meek person is a weak person, uh, or a shy person, or an ineffective person, or someone who doesn't have a backbone to stand up for what they believe in. But that's not what James is describing at all here. What he's describing, meekness means humbling ourselves under God's truth, instead of trying to humble God under our truth. God's truth includes the fact that he has made you to be a glorious and effective and intelligent and creative person. And so in God's opinion and by his design, you are something wonderful and unique. And it's not true humility to say, oh no, I'm not wonderful or special. That's false humility. God made you with gifts and he wants you to use them. False humility says to God, oh no, you're wrong. I'm not really all that gifted or important. But that's not humility, it's pride. It's pride because it's writing our own description of reality and replacing God's description of reality with it. So this is the true test of wisdom. Are we living a good life that demonstrates the wisdom of humility and the humility of wisdom? And that is in such stark contrast to the false humility of counterfeit wisdom, which, as you recall, James describes as jealous, sinful, uh, selfish, boastful, False, unearthly, unspiritual, 
demonic. It produces disorder in every vile practice. And don't forget, the counterfeit wisdom is the one that naturally comes from within. It's the default setting. It's the easy road. It regards true wisdom as simple and naive, but in reality, counterfeit wisdom is simple, naive, and selfish. It's the easy way. True wisdom is, by contrast, difficult to acquire and hard to maintain. It requires great personal sacrifice, and it provides a completely different vision of the good life. But it's worth it. One writer put it this way, Suppose you lived in a village or worked in a college or a factory or a farm. Suppose some of the people that you met every day were like the people in verse 16. And then suppose that others were like the people in verse 17. Which would you rather see coming towards you down the street? Which would you rather have as your neighbor? And the, que- the question answers itself. But the challenge is, how to become that good neighbor yourself, right? Because our default setting is the other way. Which leads us to our third point. First point was, we should measure our lives by the fruit of wisdom. The second is that wisdom is measured by our character, especially our humility. And now, the third thing that we should learn from this passage. How do we acquire wisdom? How do we get this? Everything we just described, how do we get it? Proverbs chapter 4 says, The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. (laughs) Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. The first thing Proverbs says that you need to know about wisdom is that it's worth more than anything you have. Or in the words of Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's fools who despise wisdom and instruction. The third thing we need to know about wisdom, where, where do we get this? How do we get wisdom? Wisdom is not natural. It is supernatural. In James chapter 1, he tells us to ask God for wisdom. And here in chapter 3, he says the true wisdom comes from above, not from within. Natural only is not enough. There's something wrong with being only natural. Because the full reality of the universe includes supernatural reality, not just natural reality. Our, Our lives as they function truly in Christ are motivated not solely by our own personal intrinsic perception and strength and understanding. If we're living only in the creation naturally and without relation to the Creator, then we are spiritually dead. And that's our natural state. It's very difficult for us to comprehend because our culture has replaced God's definition of the good life with a new one. Instead of do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, we live by a different set of commandments now. Thou shalt be cool and have fun. Thou shalt go with the flow, and thou shalt YOLO. But the biggest commandment of all in our culture is, Thou shalt be thyself. Thou shalt be natural. Thou shalt be what thou art. Right? The Bible is saying, Thou shalt not be natural. 
Instead, thou shalt be spiritual. You should be redeemed and renewed. That's the, that's the way to life. That doesn't mean we should be unnatural or distorted. That's not the point. The point here is that nature is broken and incomplete. We can see that readily in the world around us. We don't have to read the newspaper very long or watch TV very long before we see that nature is broken and incomplete. The world around us is, and that includes us. We ourselves are broken and incomplete too. Nature is good, and we are good, but all of it is broken and incomplete. It needs needs to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed. All of it, the whole world and each one of us, needs to be redeemed. To lean into our own nature, to ignore the supernatural realities of God, is death. And that counterfeit wisdom results in jealousy, selfishness, boasting, disorder, every vile practice, anything but a good life. We so desperately need the wisdom from above. We so desperately need it. True wisdom never looks like what we expect it to. It's surprising. It's shocking when we encounter its meekness, its purity, its gentleness, its openness to reason, its impartiality, its sincerity. We're shocked when we see mercy, righteousness, and peace. Sometimes breathtakingly in awe, and other times kind of afraid when we encounter that wisdom in real life, in real time. When we come to the table here in a moment, I will describe how the wisdom of God, every word of it, is perfectly embodied once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. But when you, when you leave today, when you go out from here, it would be worth spending time to work through the words here in James' description of godly wisdom, the fruit of wisdom, to look through each word one by one, to do it slowly, to review your life in light of these things. You might, you might even want to take note of the, the times, the places, the people that make it, make it hard for you to live this way. And then pray and ask God for the wisdom from above and persevere in pursuing it. Without it, you might as well be walking through the streets of Baghdad without a map or a radio, wandering and hoping that you get out in one piece. Instead, listen to the words of Proverbs. Get wisdom. Even if it costs all you have, get understanding. Amen.